Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by David Weigel, who is a national political correspondent at The Washington Post. And we're going to be talking about Hillary Clinton and her new book. David, before I went out to America to start working for a magazine called The American Conservative, you wrote, this was around 2008, you wrote a cover piece, I think it was, called The Waning Power of Hillary Hate. And it was a brilliant piece. I was really struck by it. But over the course of the year, I had quite a lot of phone calls from American conservative readers ringing up to insist that they still did hate Hillary Clinton <laughs> quite strongly. I just thought I'd ask you now, Clinton's book's come out. She's had quite a lot of publicity this week. And she's obviously now a defeated figure in many ways. And she says she's not going to be a candidate anymore. Where are we on the America hate, Hillary hate gauge? Well, let me see if I can navigate that without falling into the weeds. Uh, I think <laughs> one of my arguments at that point uh, was that conservatives in D.C. remained convinced that she was going to be the presidential nominee in 2008 and that Obama was interesting but couldn't couldn't break the power of the Clinton machine. There was this fear uh, that proved, <laughs> I think, as we all saw, uh, pretty ill-placed in the power of the Clinton machine to mm. do everything it takes to win, uh, including and especially the murder of its enemies. And so I was arguing and saying, don't count on that. It's it's really after, and this is after seven years of George W. Bush uh, ending in complete, complete disgrace, basically. Uh, mm. Don't count on that being enough to carry out. Uh, I think that my general theory, there are a million ways to analyze the defeat of Hillary Clinton, just like there are a million things that go wrong when a space shuttle explodes. Uh, I think that the, the one key is that the Hillary Clinton of 2008, for all her problems, was still a senator who had to represent all of upstate New York and campaign and hold town halls with normal humans pretty frequently. Uh, and the Hillary of 2016 was one who had spent four years in the State Department with uh, the halo effect, as it's called. And you can see, yeah. kind of see the you can see, kind of see the cheery coverage you get as America's representative of foreign policy reflecting on Nikki Haley right now, who's not really achieving much, but is getting, uh, is she the new star? Is she the savior of the GOP? She had a meeting where uh, they agreed to something. Uh, and then <laughs> she, she spent the years after that, before running for president, talking only to rich people. Uh, you know, no offense to rich people. None, none more they get from day, day to day, but that is not the same as talking to, to voters. They have different concerns. There are different uh, ways to soothe them. And I think she lost track of just the way to talk to working people. I don't think the Hillary of 2008, for example, would have gone on this uh, flight about how coal miners are going to be just great once we retrain them and, and their jobs go away. Just, yeah. That's not how you talk if you're a senator. It is how you talk if you're at the uh, Goldman Sachs Pfizer idea brunch in, <laughs> in, in yeah. some some island in northern Michigan, right? That's yes. or, or in Switzerland, more likely. But in the book, as you say, you said in your review in the Washington Post, she does blame herself a lot, it seems. Yeah. Well, the way these books come out always is is with leaks or excerpts emphasizing the juiciest part bits. That's I mean, that's how you want to sell anything. That's how I probably should have sold my book, although I don't know if uh, infighting between members of Emerson Lake and Palmer is as exciting as this. And so <laughs> the first quotes that came out were her... Uh, <laughs> I think most amusingly, just reprinting a Facebook meme about how Bernie Sanders promised everyone a pony, and yeah. she she wouldn't. Uh, in the book, I mean, I, every couple pages, she apologizes for herself, and then kind of packs it with a argument that, well, one reason she has to apologize for herself so much at, at center is 
unfairness toward women, powerful women uh, from corporate from corporate life to to politics. And as somebody who has really only covered politics but reads a lot of that, you you see a little bit of the way you know a CEO like Marissa Meyer is covered versus a, a male CEO who runs over something just as disastrous. Yes. And so she does blame herself for honestly what I was saying. I mean, she does think she she was out of touch with with voters in a way that she that surprised her. She just didn't realize how how much she lost track of of elemental voters. She talks about building a coalition the way a normal campaign does, and fair enough, and that's what both defeated and successful Republican Republican campaigns have done in the past. While Trump was running this very elemental thing based uh, and she I think what she doesn't take enough blame for, and I mentioned this in a review of the book, I wrote a paper, is uh, she did make a decision to pivot from what what focus groups said they didn't care about, which was Trump's economic policies, to what focus groups said, said they did, which was him being a, a bore, uh, B-O-O-R, not, he's obviously not boring. <laughs> and so, for example, she complains in the book that uh, when she was doing a Rust Belt economics tour and you know, to her credit very meaty lots of here's what we're going to do we're going to create jobs or are going to be free to go to community college all these all these actual policy ideas uh mm-hmm. while that was happening the media was focused on this uh muslim father because kazir khan whose son uh, died in the military and had given a powerful speech to the dnc and trump was in a feud with him all week and so what she leaves out is that her campaign decided one to bring him on stage to the dnc i'm not blaming him for Trump's reaction. They yeah. decided to elevate him as a DNC that was themed less on economics, more on the offensiveness of this guy than, uh, I, let's say, the, the DNC of 2012. The yes. DNC of 2012 was against Mitt Romney. The argument was always this guy is a soulless corporate raider who's going to uh, elevate the rich. The argument against Rom- Trump was all over the place. And so it was her decision to elevate that issue, which was proved less compelling to people. Yes, um, they yeah. didn't always follow the sort of when they go low, you go high dictum, did they? Well, they, <laughs> they I think they just misunderstood how people vote. There's a great episode of The Simpsons, <laughs> that, uh, actually a couple episodes of The Simpsons that deal with this, that deal with the absurdity of focus groups, I think, better than uh, real political journalism has. Uh, when people are in a room being shown arguments, they often... Uh, they're they're fallible, and they might say something is compelling or something is disgusting, and then mm. they might go and vote on something else. And that's the case with Trump kept surprising Democrats who said to do things that, uh, frankly, if he was a candidate for state senate, might rule him out. Uh, but yes. when people were making this ele- much more existential decision about president, they kept forgiving it because they said, "Well, I like the idea of shaking things up." And uh, the, the Clinton campaign never discredited how he was going to shake things up, which I think Democrats are. For for the limited amount of oxygen they get in the press, doing a better job of now. Uh, they spent the whole August recess beating them up on trying to cut taxes for the rich, and I think that actually has gotten through to the extent where Trump is now claiming that he won't do that. <laughs> yes, and I mean, you know, in as much as one can say mainstream America, when mainstream America sees Hillary returning to the spotlight this week, do you think a lot of them feel a, a pang of regret? that she's not their president? Or do you think there's a sort of general wish that she would go away? Uh, not really. The, the, not really much of a desire that she that she <laughs> was president. I think there is a desire that someone who is not Trump was president, but uh, people will point out Clinton's extremely low favorable ratings right now. Yes. Uh, and what I think they leave out is that there are people, and I think I know half of them, who voted for her reluctantly, 
uh, if the elect, if there was a snap election tomorrow, they'd vote for her again, reluctantly, but <laughs> really resent that she managed to botch an election against this guy. And I, I think that is a lot has a lot to do with her lo- her low ratings. It's uh, a combination of everything people didn't like before, plus a new cohort of people who voted for her but turned it against her. Because on election day, her um, I think her favorable rating was around forty five percent, and it's down to thirty five. So there's that big gap in the middle and i think that that explains it so not much of a desire for her to come back uh there is still so <laughs> i think like all all of human behavior we are pretty good at rationalizing something bad and mm. the decision people make in uh, for at least the first couple of years of presidency is well you know let's let's string this out we we're in this together uh, it, it would be fairly awkward for me to wake up every day thinking I, I made the wrong decision or my countrymen made the wrong decision. And then usually toward the end, maybe if not of the first term of the second, uh, they're happy to dump on the guy. I mean, that's what happened with George W. Bush, who leaves office with, I think, 18% favorable rating. Only mm-hmm. the hardest hardcore Republicans would admit that they like the guy. And even, even now, he's not really, re- he's not rehabilitated to the sense he's two-term president who has not been to a Republican convention since 2004, for example. Um, <laughs> And so I, they, I think people are still rationalizing this. Uh, and for that reason, also people, I just break this down a bit more. I think in the press, there is still a tendency to look for a pivot, look for a way that he's going to, he's going to either mount a comeback or move to the center. Uh, and it is not that, that narrative form is not really, suited to somebody who will just lie and change his mind all the time as trump does for example he's i just mentioned the tax part of this he is still in favor uh well for well let's go back to healthcare. So that's already over uh he was in favor of everyone having cheap insurance he was willing to sign off on programs that did completely the opposite of that but when he'd go and describe them he'd say he's in favor of plans to give everybody cheap insurance and the he's doing something similar with taxes where he's in favor of mostly supply-side tax cuts on, on the wealthy, corporate tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he, then he's going, he's going out and saying, we don't want to really cut taxes on the rich. And so the, the, all of the institutions of journalism are, uh, we, have, we have our rules and our, our storylines, and we will go talk to people who are saying, I wish he wouldn't say that. I hope he doesn't do that. In yes. reality, he's, he's going to sign off on anything. And I think this, just to bring it back to Hillary, it's a resentment that uh, just resonated throughout the book, that she has had to live by the normal narrative rules of journalism and then and then some i mean she's somebody this is there are republicans who uh have introduced legislation that uh, has not moved yet to start new investigations of her campaign uh as a as a way to stop the investigations of of the president so yes she's watched this and said okay i was investigated for the entire my presence of my husband's presidency over real estate deal I made, they think it is too much to go for six months into investigation of the, the this president's ties. So she thinks she had all the normal... And she blames sexism. Gravity. She blames, to a large part, sexism. She blames a media that she thinks hated her irrationally. And she then to, then she blames herself for giving them, you know, in the way that Richard Nixon blamed, blamed himself, gave, giving them the sword. You know, she should, she, knowing all this, why did she give these corporate speeches? Knowing all this, why did she um, use a private ser- server? She knows, she, I think she knew five seconds after those became stories that there were problems in the book. She admits it. Um, and, I, I, but it's, as, 
I'd say as a document, as as this document's a bit short, short of a word because it's close to 500 pages. As a statement, uh, I think what it's trying to do is set her up for will be you know maybe a 15, 20 year career, or let's say she you know she becomes a new Madeline Albright. She is a controversial but inspiring figure to lots of people who will be giving speeches. Uh, maybe maybe for a bit less money, uh, certainly yeah. different people, and I'll, they'll touch a lot on what it's like to be a powerful woman who is brought down by sexism. I think she's going to do that for years. This sets that up. I think she also she's quite she's as you said in your piece, she's quite cheesy too, which which I think yeah. it's gonna, she'll sort of go as a sort of cheesy matriarch figure. You think? Yeah, she's a she's a Facebook mom. She she yeah. literally shares Facebook posts and she has Hamilton references and sitcom references and things like that and. It's the stuff that in the campaign people thought might have been focus group. It feels like she really is like that. She just has this extremely <laughs> normie, basic sense of humor. Uh, I think another thing we'll do, she's not going to be very much desired in Democratic politics. You know, five years ago, anyone running for office in Missouri would demand she come and raise money. They're just not going to do that anymore. Uh, but she wants, she knows the curves of history. And had she won, uh, I think the the entire storyline of her family would have been different. You know, the Bill Clinton, the president who was impeached, but then was there as his wife reclaimed the White House. It's yeah. now a discredited family, and by nature, we always look for the brilliance or the uh, the adroitness of somebody who manages to win the White House, uh, and the failings of, of of why she did. She doesn't just want him to get away with that. She wants. Uh, Donald Trump to be seen as a puppet of foreign interests and a, a personally a plutocrat who's trying to rich himself, um, who had all this help to stumble over the finish line. And if people don't regret that she wasn't president, they still feel bad that he is. So she, yeah. to a lot, really uh, in this book, goes after Trump. To an extent, we're long past these old norms in America uh, of all kinds, but the ones where defeated candidates stop talking about their. Uh, their their lost campaigns. Uh, yeah, she doesn't care anymore. She's she wants people to safely say America made a gigantic mistake, and it was uh, the fact that he won was a was a was a goof. Yes, and finally, we hear a lot that sort of the Clintons. Or we've heard a lot of the last fifteen twenty years that the Clintons control the Democratic Party. They control the funding. They control the all the sort of power structures. How true is that? Still, not very true now. Uh, and there's a. I think one thing that's been revealing in her interviews about the book, not so much the book itself, is she's reacted to articles I, I saw and kind of scoffed at that would take the fact that, you know, some Democrat met with a person who donated to her and spin a thousand word rant about how this proves the Clinton still run things. And she would comment on them. I think I think she realizes there is a, uh, again, because Bill Clinton won two elections, because she kept coming back, a sense that they must be doing they must be pulling these strings massively. Uh, certainly over the years, they collected more uh, friendships with donors than any political family, save the Bushes. And that is yes. true. That If you are a Democratic donor, um, you at least know the Clintons. Maybe you didn't give to them in, la in one of the campaigns, but they have that big Rolodex. The, the thing is... Uh, they just that doesn't matter like it used to. And there's not there's not a new force in democratic politics who has that. But the the new argument in democratic politics is that you should not depend on these sorts of large donors. You should not, have, for example, have a super PAC. Uh, so if she wanted to jump back into politics and say, all of my donors go help out somebody, I think there'd be skepticism in the party's base. And they would say, instead of that, let's leave, you know, David. 
David Geffen and Lloyd Blankfein and these people. It's just thanks, but no thanks. Stay out. Um, we instead are going to try to raise money from well, one, you know, quote unquote good companies like maybe a Yelp or a uh, a, a solar company, and uh, two, that we're we're going to try to crowdsource so that everyone's given ten bucks and everyone has buy-in and there's n- nobody nobody's uh, slanting our influence. Because the, the again, I, I keep steering into the weeds, but mm. the Clintons took back Bill Clinton took back the White House in 1992 after three elections. Republic, you know, Republicans didn't just win, but they won massive supermajority super majority landslides that they can't win anymore. I mean, Donald Trump takes the White House 46 percent of the votes, which is actually fairly pathetic. Yeah. Uh, and they they did so not just with this, this coalition of voters, but by changing who donated to the Democratic Party, making it safe for banks to donate to both parties. Uh, there is a progressive Democratic Party uh, from really the, the, the well, I'm, I want to get into the racist history of the party, but let's, let's say from the New Deal to through Jimmy Carter. It is, yeah. uh, it is a labor, it is a folk party with a base of labor and of interest groups, and companies give to it because they need to give to the company in power, but they didn't have a ton of influence. And the Clintons take back power, the Obama takes back power with this bargain. Uh, Obama takes more money from Goldman Sachs than she does in 2008, for example. And uh, I don't, that that's I think more important than you know, this or that family that's been giving to the campaigns. Yes, that, and, I, and I saw she, she, she's been trying to insist that even though Obama took all this money yeah. uh, from Wall Street, he was harder on but that's just not really true, is it? Not true at all. I mean, if, if yeah. you if you plunked Elizabeth Warren into that office in two thousand nine, uh, she's pro- she's limited. She'd be limited by the same realities that Barack Obama was limited by. You know, it, it's up to you if you want to respond to a, a monthly job loss of eight hundred thousand dollars by going by breaking the banks. But she probably would have. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 Obama made the decision to have this kind kind of concordance with Wall Street. Uh, we're going to regulate you, but we're going to make sure you don't fall apart and. Uh, that that would that have been happening if he did not get a lot of Wall Street money to win the White House? And this is a, a thing that kind of fascinates me about American politics going forward. It's it's not dissimilar to what happened in the UK. Uh, there, well, I, I, it, it, and there were very smart conservatives in this country, like Ramesh Panur, who argued in 2016. Honestly, Republicans should just let Hillary win. Trump's going to split our party and also create the conditions for radicalism on the left and totally. Totally, that's what happened. He was completely correct. Yeah. Uh, the next Democratic Party might have a, an electorate that doesn't really, really want Republicans anymore. You know, I get 46% for Trump. Um, a president who's fairly discredited in important ways. He's getting to get some things done, but imagine if the economy's basically where it is right now. Imagine he, he's been investigated for scandals. Imagine if he's alienated all these other groups. And they could win with a far more left-wing candidate who does not have uh, this this donor support, does not have that inf- does not have uh, banks and monopolies, certainly Google and companies like that. Uh, mm. Just in the last couple of weeks, I've been writing about the, the turn of both parties, but Democrats turned the, the hardest on Google and Facebook and Amazon and, and going from, well, you know, let's deregulate and some good companies could rise to the top going from there to when we, we need to return to a 1930s style of anti-monopoly uh, yes. legislation. We need to return to a 1930s style of, of, uh, of bank regulation. Um, that was not on the table under Barack Obama. It would not have been on the, on the table if Hillary Clinton was president it would remain fringe view on the left, but uh, there were, 
the Clintons are not really relevant in Democratic politics because having lost, the left is con- confident that it is a pure left-wing type of politics that can win. And not just because it's left-wing, but because it's pure. Um, it, it's going to get a chance to run against... Uh, now, there's Democrats I talked to who are not Elizabeth Warren who say this. They run against a president who has a hotel where people buy influence and has a cabinet where people are using the... Pl- uh, are taxpayer-funded planes to go on honeymoons and things like that, and it collects a ton of money that influences policy. So it is it is just like a, a nightmare scenario if you were part of this very large and influential donor class that was kind of uh, hedging your bets. Worst thing that happens if Democrats are in power is maybe they deregulate some other poor sucker's industry. Or mm-hmm. sorry, they regulate like the coal industry, but if you're banking, mm-hmm. you're... you're, you're it's not as bad as it could be. You're going to try to undo everything you can, but it's not the worst. Instead, no, they might, and they're going to try to fund against it, but they, they went from a Democratic Party that was going to incrementally change health care to one that's probably going to be running on ending the insurance industry <laughs> in 2018-20. And that is not a party where the Clintons are very relevant. I, I mean, who are the emerging figures? Steve Bullock, is, is that someone who's, who's oh, seen as... I'm surprised you're... You brought him up first, but yeah, so he's one of them. Yeah, it's just somebody I read about yesterday who I'd been told about before. But could you go through sort of maybe the three or four candidates and just give us right. a brief summary of? Well, there's a, they're they're focused first on there's two governors' races this year. They're they're probably going to win Virginia, and New Jersey. They're focused next on taking back as much of Congress as possible. Mm. But then that we're going to start seeing the likely figures emerge from those those campaigns, just who they campaign for, etc. Uh, Elizabeth Warren. She fought her first election for anything ever in her 60s when she got elected to the Senate in 2012. She was seen as not really interested in the entire job of the presidency, being an influencer party. She's increasingly seen as someone who will run, and she's not – I keep using the term left wing. I think maybe out of laziness. She is an anti-monopoly. She would have been an Eisenhower Republican. Instead, she thinks there is a political system that has allowed – uh, banks to commit crimes against people and needs to be reined in. And mm. uh, she's adopted other things in life. She is, I think, the most influential thinker. Bernie Sanders, who is going to be 78 at the next election and will probably flirt with it. If he does run, I think he's not going to win the nomination. He's still somebody shaping the, the storyline. Everyone's kind of uh, orbiting around those planets. So, yes. uh, so in the Senate, it's Kirsten Gillibrand from, from New York, who is a fairly moderate congresswoman from a rural part of the state who is now a liberal senator there's cory booker from new jersey who was a big city mayor who's now a liberal senator and there's uh, kamala harris who was a san francisco da then attorney general then a liberal senator so a number of big urban liberal senators and then for that reason there are people from uh the midwest like tim ryan a congressman from ohio who's kind of has been seen as a mediocrity for a long time as trying to get more of a profile and then mm. like steve bullock the governor of montana who has won Montana is one of the few states where they choose the governor the same on the same day as the president. So he has watched, he's won two close, but decisive victories while Republicans have won the state by 20 points for president. And he is actually, he's quite populist. I interviewed him a few months ago when I was covering the state special election for the house. And he is, he is a let's protect the environment. Let's, let's break up big, big uh, monopolies. Um, Let's be, and he's, he's, I think, softer. The only social issues he's softer on are, I'd say, gun rights. Yes. Uh, but that's about it. And he's already formed a PAC 
because I think the way this works, you introduce yourself to the press by showing up to campaign for some state senator or something. And I, I mean, it's honestly one of my favorite little quirks of our system is that the the mayor of Manchester, New Hampshire, and like uh, the swing district candidates for the Iowa legislature end up getting every prudential president in their backyard because that's the way <laughs> they get taken seriously. So those people, you know, that's that's one short list, and I think there is a. There's a strange sense that, oh, they don't have anyone who's got a perfect biography, a perfect star. And I want to say, you know, Barack Obama's pastor said, Goddamn America, and he won. <laughs> like they yeah, did, yeah. They've not been waiting around for somebody with, a, you know, with six medals of honor and a, and a perfect resume. Uh, they're in a position where a, they might be facing a discredited, a very discredited Republican Party, and they're, they're shooting the moon. There's really very little space for somebody who wants to run as a compromiser. So you'll hear about Amy Klobuchar, Senator from minnesota and she i i need to check my math on this um but she's i think the senator who won the biggest victory re-election victory in a democratic state who has not endorsed uh single-payer health care for example and that's not going to fly there's just no there's you're not exciting anyone in the party with that yeah well david that's fascinating as always and i hope you'll come and join us again soon i appreciate it thank you very much Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a spectator moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. 